Hey, everybody. Join us as we delve into our favorite dark tales and paranormal mysteries. Venture with us beyond the safe places that exist in daylight as we go Beyond Beyond the the shadows. Shadows. True crime. Paranormal. Hauntings. UFOs. Cryptids and unsolved mysteries. Conspiracy theories. Past lives. Reincarnation. And all the like are just a few of the topics that we will tackle. If it haunts your fucking dreams, then it will be on our show. Hi, and welcome back to Beyond the Shadows, episode 19. Welcome back. Uh, so this is part two of our three-part Amityville Horror Special. Uh, you definitely don't have to listen to them in order, but I would recommend it. It'll be more – it'll make a lot more sense if you listen to them. So episode 18 would be where to start if you wanted to. This is episode 19. Uh, episode one focused on the murders, and this episode will focus on the haunting itself. And uh, we'd like to throw another shout out here to uh, Margaret. She gave us a rating over here on the show, another five-star rating. She put one out that says, support our newbies. I've been listening since day one. Love the stories and especially the storytellers. Their humor and laughs bring me joy. Best of luck. Look forward to future shows. Margaret. Margaret sent us a story early on in the fire pit, too. She did. She did she a, sent us was, a good fire pit. I think it was yeah. bent time. It was great. Yeah. Yep. I think so. that might have been our actual... Well, we had Sarah on episode one, but that was one of our first emails that we got in the box. So that was great. So, yeah. So we, we appreciate that, Margaret. Uh, yeah, yeah, she's definitely. an OG. Definitely. So <laughs> thanks, Margaret. Uh, so on uh, YouTube, I think it came out about a week ago. There's actually a story. It's an Ecuadorian woman <laughs> was declared dead and she woke up in her coffin yeah. at the wake. <laughs> <laughs> they said they heard knocking on yeah. the coffin. Can you imagine? Which is weird because obviously that means they don't do embalming. No embalming over at there, least I they guess. Didn't in this case. Anyways, it was a uh, 76-year-old Bella Montoya Tapia. Uh she was declared dead after a presumptive cerebrovascular incident. Yeah, but she wasn't dead. They showed her on the clip and yeah, she was definitely she was agonal breathing. If anyone yeah. knows what that is, she she didn't look good, but she was in there what three days? Yeah, it was uh, a no, long. I, th- I think it was seven. I think it was seven days from oh from God. when she was declared dead. It was a while, uh, but yeah, they brought her back to the hospital, the same hospital. Yeah, I know that's what I love. <laughs> the same the same clowns that <laughs> declared her dead in the first place. She gets sent back to. Yeah. But you yeah. know when that story breaks out, like everybody in that hospital is just popping the fucking no-dos for the rest of their <laughs> stay there because everybody's terrified of being buried. No kidding. <laughs> but imagine being in a wake. I mean, they're uncomfortable environments as it is. But right. then you got a knocking coming from inside the coffin. <laughs> That's not terrifying. That's something all. that happened in our family no, for, for sure. sure. Yeah, and then for sure. It didn't happen in the video, but you know, she probably sat right up straight and started taking notes on who was there and who wasn't, yep. what kind of shirt you, know you were wearing. You, your, your pants weren't ironed. <laughs> for the rest of my life, I'm going to hold a grudge about my death. <laughs> no, that was that's nuts, man. 
Wow. I, I did want to say that this doesn't happen very often at Scott's Hospital, so you guys can rest easy on that. They're, very they're, seldom. They're, they're generally pretty sure. We're that not going to say never. <laughs> Nothing's a hundred percent. That was but. April, man. Let it go. <laughs> so. Uh, thanks for tuning in, guys. Hopefully you liked part one, and we're going to get right to part two. Do you know what the most frightening thing in the world is? On December 18th, 1975, the Lutz family moved into the house located at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, New York. Just 28 days later, they fled the house, never to return. What happened in between is known as the Amityville Horror. The house had remained empty for 13 months after the DeFeo murders. It was being offered for what was then a bargain basement price of $80,000. With the neighborhood it inhabited and all of the features the house offered, it was valued more in the range of $150,000. Man, would you do it? Would you move into it? This is a half-price house on the ocean. Uh, yeah, probably not. Probably and you know, how many people not. just died in this house? Six. I mean, Six it's, it's not like you could say it was 40, 50 years ago, not that that would matter. It was a year, so. Yeah, that was, it's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't I'm, think I could do it. I'm not overly freaked out by stuff like that, but no, I don't think I could. It's more just the bad energy and stuff. As and much I, as yeah. I think I'd want the house, but I just don't think I could do it. I, I would be less scared of the ghosts and stuff than just the, the energy. It just, yeah. you know, it's just some negative, bad, bad vibe. Negative there, shit you know? from this one, yep. George and Kathy Lutz had married in July 1975 and were now looking for a new home for themselves and Kathy's three children from a previous marriage. Nine-year-old Daniel, seven-year-old Chris, and five-year-old Melissa, known as Missy by the family. They instantly loved the property and were not dissuaded when the realtor disclosed the DeFeo murders to them. It was something they could definitely deal with. George had recently inherited his father's land surveying company and was confident they could make the financials work somehow. With the extra space the house provided, he planned to move his work office into the basement to save on overhead. The family and their dog, a crossbreed Malamule Labrador dog named Harry, moved into the house on December 18, 1975. In buying the house, George decided to pay an additional $400 to obtain much of the furniture left behind by the DeFeo family. Now that's something I can tell you for shit sure I would not do. <laughs> Especially like a bed. Yeah, and he did. He bought the beds. That's just insane. Yeah. No way. We were just talking about the bad energy. Yeah. yeah I'm yeah. all set with the murder uh, bed. Uh, yeah, know? murder bed. Yeah. I'll thanks. pay an extra 50 bucks for a new What bed. is that stain in that bed? <laughs> yeah, that's just crazy. That's just no way. Uh, to obtain much of the furniture left behind by the DeFeo family. George's friend, who was familiar with the history of the house, insisted that they have it blessed first. George, who was a non-practicing Methodist, so he wasn't familiar with the process. Kathy, who was a Catholic, albeit also not practicing, talked him through it. The family was busy un unloading things when Father Mancuso arrived to bless the house. Father Mancuso was a lawyer and a psychotherapist who lived in the Sacred Heart Rectory. He woke up feeling uneasy on the day of the blessing, but couldn't put his finger on it. He let himself into the house to perform the rites, but when he flicked out the holy water and began to pray, he was slapped across the face by an invisible hand and ordered by a disembodied masculine voice to get out. Father Mancuso 
Am I saying that right? Mancuso. Mancuso yeah. left the house abruptly and did not tell the Lutz what he had experienced. So he gets slapped across the face and decides, I'm not going to tell. <laughs> very, very no, probably No, he didn't think anyone would believe him anyway. Very heroic on his yeah. part. Sure. Way to look out for your flock. Right? <laughs> on his way back to the rectory, his hood flew open and crashed across the windshield, blocking his view. The driver's side door came open, and then the car stalled. He decided he would call the Lutz the following day and told George they should stay out of the second-floor room where the incident had occurred. The room was intended to be Kathy's sewing room and had been the room belonging to Mark and John DeFeo previously. The Lutzes gave the two boys a bedroom on the third floor, Ronald DeFeo's old bedroom, and set aside the other third-floor bedroom as a playroom. Missy will sleep on the second floor in her own room across the hall from George and Kathy. Almost from the get-go, George finds himself perpetually cold while inside the house. Even though the thermostat says the house is at a comfortable temperature and the rest of the family is fine, George becomes obsessed with building fires in the fireplace. He also becomes obsessed with the boathouse and feels the need to obsessively check it every night, even though he doesn't know why. The family says their personalities begin to change almost immediately upon moving in. George stops showering and <coughs> shaving. They both lose their tempers quickly with the children, even admitting to swearing at them and hitting them with wooden spoons and straps. George also begins to neglect his business, rarely ever leaving the house. He calls in gruff orders for his men to get things done unsupervised. The two boys also begin having vicious fights that had never occurred previously. George begins walking, waking every night at 3.15, the reported time of the DeFeo murders. One time it's a knocking that wakes him. Later on, he begins to hear what to him sounds like a marching band downstairs. The sound is very loud, but never seems to awaken anybody else. The sound stops whenever he reaches the living room where the noise originates from. Later on, when the marching band starts up, George finds the furniture all moved against one wall and the carpet rolled back as if to create more space for the band to perform. On several occasions while alone, Kathy smells perfume and is touched by what she feels to be a female hand. She at first finds the touch comforting and then feels that it is Luis DeFeo consoling her, but later on begins to find the touch more menacing. Shortly after moving in, despite Kathy having scrubbed all the bathrooms clean, the bowl suddenly becomes stained with black and she cannot scrub it away. The bathroom also takes on a tremendous smell. The smell in the second floor bathroom was described by George as being like a whore's perfume from Paris. <laughs> she thought she felt the hand on her face was comforting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah sorry. I did, I <laughs> It's not comforting when I yeah. piss myself. A dis disembodied <laughs> hand is very, very comforting. The sewing room also becomes inexplicably infested with flies, despite it being December. George kills them off and thereafter keeps the sewing room closed. They tell the kids to stay out of the sewing room, but they do not tell them why. The kids speculate that it may be a hiding spot for their Christmas presents. Uh, you know, if my parents told me to not go in a particular room. That's exactly. Any chance they weren't there? Of course that's you know, that's what exactly the hell kid wouldn't. Yeah, stay out of You'd be better room. off to tell the kids we want you to spend yeah. time in the sewing room. There's books in there, <laughs> all kinds of learning materials. There's snacks. Yeah, no, for sure there's chores. <laughs> <laughs> They'll for sure never go in yeah. there. 
A few days after moving in, George wakes at his usual 3.15 time and notices the 250-pound front door has been ripped off its hinges. The hardware that had been bent in a strange position indicating a powerful force had actually been trying to open it from the inside. Kathy is one day overpowered by a strong, sickly sweet smell, and in looking inside a closet for the source, she finds the cross that she had hung inside the closet to be hanging upside down. Father Mancuso falls very ill after his visit to the Lutz house, and he runs a fever of 104 degrees. He is ordered to get bed rest, but can't get the Lutzes out of his mind. Whenever he does try and call them, their calls inexplicably get interrupted by static and technical difficulties. Over the period the Lutzes lived in Amityville, Mancuso becomes obsessed with their safety, but finds himself unable to summon the courage to go back to the house. His room at the rectory becomes infested with a horrendous smell that eventually makes its way through the building. He takes this to mean the entity at 112 Ocean Avenue can reach him remotely and that he should refrain from meddling in the case. His hands also begin to blister and bleed in the way similar to the stigmata, which he also attributes to the evil forces at the Lutz's home. Daughter Missy asks about whether angels can talk and tell her parents that she has a new pet friend named Jody. Jody is a pig and tells her about the little boy who used to live in the house but had died. One night, on one of his trips to the boathouse for his nightly compulsion to, compulsion to check it out, he glances up at Missy's window. He sees her at the window staring down, and in the shining light of the full moon, he can see another figure standing behind her. It is the face of a pig with glowing red eyes. George runs into the house and speeds up to Missy's room, only to find the room empty except for Missy sound asleep. He hears a creak near the window and looks up to see Missy's little rocking chair moving back and forth with no one in it. A few nights later, Kathy goes up and finds that the boys had gotten themselves ready for bed, which was unheard of. They informed her that they no longer wanted to play in the playroom, and when she goes inside, she finds it to be ice cold. Kathy's younger bro uh, brother, Jimmy, is over visiting with the family uh, the night of his wedding. It is the day after Christmas. He puts his coat in the kitchen with $1,500 in cash inside the pocket due to the caterer that night. When George finally gets showered and shaved and they are ready to leave, he finds that the envelope and the cash are gone. George and Kathy's father offer to pay the bill in the short term until the cash can be found. It never turns up. Oddly, George ends up with a new car. Fifteen hundred bucks back then for yeah. a caterer? That's a shit ton of money. Yes, it is. You know? That, woo. Better be some good some good eat. Yeah. <laughs> George stole that shit. When mm -mm. entering the church for the ceremony, George found himself to be queasy. He had an upset stomach all day but being inside the church had made it even worse. He struggled throughout the night, and they left early to head home. Kathy's Aunt Teresa visited shortly after the wedding. She had been a nun at one point years earlier, but had left the order for reasons unknown. While getting the tour of the house, she refused to enter either the playroom or the sewing room. She told Kathy that the house contained something bad, and that she had to leave immediately. Kathy desperately tries to get her to stay, but she is undeterred and refuses to stay in the house another minute. 
One day, while putting groceries away in the basement closet, Kathy notices an odd smell and that one of the closet panel walls is loose. When checking it out, George realizes there is a small hidden room behind the closet. It is only a few feet square and painted blood red. George tells Kathy that the smell resembles the smell of blood, and he speculates the room could have been a bomb shelter installed by the DeFeos. While shutting out the light, George catches a fleet excuse me, George catches a fleeting glimpse of a face against the red background. It's a face he will later recognize as that of Ronald DeFeo. Kathy had bought George a large ceramic lion for Christmas and they had put it in the living room on the table besides George's chair. One day when Kathy was alone, she was sure that she had seen the lion move a few inches on its own. But she, sorry, but she put the incident out of her mind and never mentioned it to George. One night when walking into the living room, George stumbled upon the lion in the spot where it shouldn't be and had teeth marks that looked as though the lion had bit him. They therefore moved the lion upstairs to one of the kids' rooms, no, <laughs> into the sewing room, but eventually made it way back down to the living room. It's funny in this story how many things happen that people decide not to tell somebody else about. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, I get, you know, to a point, when stuff happens to you in a house, a lot of stuff when you kind of think you're just... I've never seen a ceramic lion move a couple inches on its own, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to fucking mention it. Yeah, you might. You might question yourself. She's going to let George sit in the chair next to the ceramic lion, by the way. Sergeant Gianfrido of the Amityville PD notices George going into the witch's brew on his way past one day and notices the striking resemblance to Ronald DeFeo. The bartender inside the witch's brew notices the same thing and later tells George of the resemblance between the two. On New Year's Eve, after putting the kids to bed, George and Kathy are sitting and staring into the fireplace. Kathy screams to George that she sees something inside the fire. They both see a white, hooded face in the flames with half of its face blown away. It sears itself into the bricks of the fireplace. That same night, not long after going to bed, George and Kathy are awakened by the sound of the doors and windows banging around. On the second floor, only Missy's door remained closed. George went around and, with great effort, was able to get the windows closed. When they went into Missy's room, she was sound asleep, but the room was boiling hot. Once again, the rocking chair was moving on its own. When George takes a step towards the chair, it stops moving. A few nights later, when George and Kathy were getting ready to go to bed upstairs, Kathy looked towards the window and screamed. Looking at them from outside were a pair of unblinking red eyes. George ran outside into the snow, but whatever had been there was already gone. The next day, when he goes out to check, he finds a pair of cloven hoofprints in the snow, as though a demon had been peeping in the windows. They had the Amityville PD come out and look at the hoofprints, as well as the boathouse door that had been ripped open despite being nailed shut. He said there was nothing they could do, but they would send patrol cars out every now and again to drive by the place. George begins to smell excrement in and around the hidden room under the basement stairs. The smell is generally associated with demonic presence. One night after being woken up yet again at 3.15 by the marching band, George goes down to the living room to only have the room go quiet. He hears a heavy breathing behind him and spins around to find no one there. 
He then realizes that the sound is coming from upstairs. When he runs up up there, he finds Kathy asleep and hovering two feet above the bed. He pulls her back down, and when she wakes up, he decides not to tell her what just happened. She falls back asleep and seems to have no memory of it the next day. George starts digging around the foundation inside of the basement, looking for the source of the strange smell. He doesn't find what he's looking for, but instead discovers an old covered well that isn't featured on any blueprint. He assumes it was left over from a previous building on the site. On Father Mantuso's advice, George contacts the Physical Research Institute and tells them what has been going on in the house. They promise to send someone out to investigate as soon as possible in exchange for George agreeing to pay the man's expenses. He also calls his co-worker, Eric's girlfriend, Francine, to gauge her interest in coming to the house. She is a clairvoyant and agrees to come. That same day, Missy takes Harry up to her room while she plays, but the dog refuses to stay in her room. Missy has to close the door to keep him inside, at which point he hides under the bed. The first chance he gets, he bolts from the room with his tail between his legs. Later that night, after Kathy goes to sleep, George is planning on going down to the witch's brew for a beer when Kathy again begins to levitate. George pulls her down and finds himself looking into the face of a 90-year-old hag. Been there. (laughs) (laughs) Her hair is gray, her face creased with lines as well as deeply scarred. Her eyes are sunken, and she spit drool from her mouth. Yep, been there. <laughs> That's usually after you come back from the bar, though, not before you've even headed down. Says you. <laughs> she cries at the sight of her appearance, and she and George lay in bed and watch the sunrise, unsure of what to do next. Next thing they know, a few hours later, her appearance has returned to normal. He was about to have to go down to the witch's brew. (laughs) I'm going to need a couple more beers. Eric and Francine come by the next day. She tells George and Kathy that she can detect both the deceased old man and an old woman in the house. She believes that they once lived there, although she doesn't think that they died there. She asks to go down to the basement, and once down there, she tells them that she thinks it was some sort of burial ground and she thinks someone may have been sacrificed and even be buried underneath the secret red room. Once they reach the second-floor sewing room, she goes into a trance and begins to speak in a deeper masculine voice that George recognizes. She says, I would like to make one suggestion to you. Most people find out who their spirits are, and they find they like them. They don't want them to get lost or go away, but in this case, I feel this house should be cleared of or exercised. Somebody's little girls or boys, I see bloodstain. Somebody hurt themselves badly here. Somebody tried to kill themselves or something. George recognizes the voice coming from Francine as that as Father Mancuso. Francine then comes out of her trance and told the Lutzes, I would like to go now. It's not a good time to try and talk to the spirits. I have a feeling I should go. The couple abruptly left with the promise to come back in a day or two with, when the vibrations were better. Francine would never return to the house. Kathy's brother and new wife, uh, Carrie, stayed the night with them upon returning from their honeymoon. 
They slept in Missy's room while she slept in the dressing room. At 3.15 in the morning, Carrie began screaming. She said she had awakened to the sight of a little boy standing at the foot of her bed. He had reached out and touched her foot. She said that she could tell he was sick and was trying to tell her to get him help. When pressed for what the little boy had said, Carrie said that he wanted to know where Missy and Jody were. Love a good mystery that leaves you wanting more? Check out my podcast. Hi, I'm Kadra, the host of Perplexity, a Mystery Podcast. I tell tales every single week that have left me perplexed. You'll hear true crime cases, mysterious disappearances, learn about cults, hear baffling sightings of cryptids, chilling paranormal encounters, and even dark and weird history. I release new episodes every Wednesday, and you can listen anywhere podcasts are available. I'm also on Patreon, and you can even watch me on YouTube. Perplexity, a mystery podcast. Stories that will leave you perplexed. After everyone else went to sleep, George and Kathy went silently throughout the house attempting to bless it themselves. They went from room to room without waking the others, and finally ended up in the living room. When they began to bless that room, they were met with a chorus of disembodied voices pleading, Will you stop? The morning after the voices, George was on the phone with Father Mancuso. The priest was telling George that he must get the family out of the house immediately, when Kathy screamed from upstairs. When George got up to the third floor, he saw a green slime running down the walls and pooling in the carpet. Kathy was yelling at the kids to determine which one had done it. George thought it looked like jello, but when tasting it, determined it had no taste at all. But, uh, that kills me because like, <laughs> when, when you see that shit, who the fuck is going to be like, you know what? I got to pop it in my mouth. You've, just, <laughs> you've never just had sure. wall jello? <laughs> Fucking wall jello is the best jello. This definitely looks like demonic <laughs> slime, but I got to. <laughs> There's only one way to tell. <laughs> Give it the old taste test, and that just kills me. I don't know. George was furious and went around opening all the windows in the house and screaming, You sons of bitches, get out. Get out of my house. Some <laughs> jello on my walls. <laughs> Kathy went around behind him, closing all the windows. Sergeant, you want to say that name for me? Uh, Gianfrido. Watch all through. The windows from his car out front, but decided not to come to the door. Later that night, George was reading the Bible in front of the dying fireplace when the fire reached out at him. At the same time, he felt icy fingers touch his neck and saw a cold mist coming down the stairs. He ran upstairs and found all the children's bedroom windows open, and he brought them into the master bedroom so he and Kathy could warm them up again. A few days later, Kathy asked Danny to go out upstairs and close the windows in her bedroom for her. He cried out in pain a minute later, and when they got up there, his right hand had been closed in the window, and he was trying to open it with his other hand. With great effort, George was able to get the window open, and they saw that his hand had been squashed flat. After running around the house swearing at the entity, again he decided that Danny needed to be taken to the hospital. Apparently, the weather was so bad that night that it took George over 15 minutes to drive one mile to the hospital. 
Uh, yeah, by any stretch, that's that's driving freaking slow. 15 minutes you could walk to the hospital and back. <laughs> if you hadn't spent the time trash-talking the entity first, maybe you could argue <laughs> at him. Uh, the doctors noted that al- although Danny's fingers were smashed flat, they were not broken. He bandaged them and gave him aspirin before sending him home. That same night, George woke up to the rain hitting him in the face. He found that many windows throughout the house were broken, torn open, as well as several of the doors, too. The family had been planning on leaving the house to go stay with Kathy's mother the next day, but due to the amount of damage to the house, the plan had to be changed. The curtains, cabinets, rugs, walls had all suffered water damage. Ten windows were broken. The hardware on the doors to the playroom and sewing room were damaged, making it impossible to close them. After making temporary repairs, George took Harry around the house to see if he reacted to anything. The dog whimpered when coming near the red room and refused to go upstairs. Later that night, with all the family sleeping in the same room, George awoke the family by screaming in his sleep, I'm coming apart! While Kathy and George were discussing his terrifying dream, Missy came in and asked George to come into her room because Jody wanted to talk to her. Oh, Jody wants to talk. (laughs) In her room, Missy pointed at the window and said, There he is! George saw a pair of fiery red eyes looking at him through the window. Before he could move, Kathy rushed past him and swung a chair at the window, shattering the glass and chasing Jody off. They heard a squealing noise heading for the boathouse. George put plywood over the broken window the next day and went to his office while the boys were at school. Kathy stayed home with Missy, and the little girl told her that Jody tells her things. Like that he is an angel. And that there used to be a little boy who lived in her room, but he died. And that she would live in the house forever and play with the little boy. Kathy determined they were leaving the house that night. But when George came back, a glazer had arrived to fix the windows, and they inexplicably decided that they would stay. That night, the kids slept with them in the master bedroom again, and George again heard the marching band at 3.15. But this time did not go downstairs. Instead, he fell asleep in the chair, and Kathy woke him up from a dream when he started screaming in two foreign languages at the same time. They finally decided that they'd had enough the next day, and loaded up the kids and Harry into the van to make their getaway. When George turned the key, however, the van would not start. A storm arrived at that moment, and the family ran back into the house. At that moment, the power went out in the house. The temperature rose steadily despite it being 20 degrees outside. The kids played hide-and-seek in the dark on the staircase, and George took a candle and went from room to room, asking God to rid the house of those that didn't belong. And then Kathy just disappeared. I'm just kidding. (laughs) When he got to the playroom, he found the green slime pouring from the door's keyhole. The heat continued to rise and made everyone sleepy, So George put the boys in their room and Missy in with Kathy. About this time, the temperature began to plummet in the house from 90 down to 60. George suddenly heard a scraping noise coming from upstairs in the boys' bedroom, but found himself unable to move. He was not being physically restrained, but suddenly had no energy to move at all. The boys' beds were sliding around above him, and then suddenly the band struck up downstairs. He heard them marching around the living room and then silently screamed as he heard them begin to ascend the stairs. 
The bedroom door began opening and slamming shut on its own, and he could hear all the other doors in the house doing the same. Suddenly there was a weight on the bed. He realized there was someone else there with them. He began to get stepped on by a heavy weight and determined that it was an unseen creature with hooved feet. The pain caused him to pass out, and he was then awakened by the boys telling him that there was, telling him that there was something in their room. They said it was a faceless monster that had tried to grab them both. Harry began barking in the hallway and looking up the stairs. George went into the hallway to look, and there standing on the top of the stairs, dressed in a white robe, was the being that they had glanced in the fireplace. It was pointing directly at him. He grabbed Kathy and the kids, and they all ran downstairs. The front door had once again been forced off its hinges. They piled into the van again, only this time it started. They sped away from 112 Ocean Avenue. It was 7 a.m., January 14, 1976, day 28. If tales of ghostly hauntings, Bigfoot encounters, extraterrestrial interactions, and cosmic awakenings are your cup of tea, then join me, Eric Salagi, host of Uncomfortable Podcast, every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Make uncomfortable your home for the topics that reside on the fringe of our reality. Eyewitnesses, researchers, and experiencers Join me on a weekly basis to delve into their paranormal and otherworldly experiences. Heard in over 65 countries worldwide, follow Uncomfortable Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your casts. Uncomfortable is now presented in video form on YouTube as well. So, as always, my friends, stay uncomfortable. The Lutz refused to go back to the house, but did authorize an investigation. On February 18, 1976, Marvin Scott of New York's Channel 5 was on hand with parapsychologists, clairvoyants, psychics, and even a demonologist. Ed and Lorraine Warren were front and center. They held three seances during the night. During the first, psychic Mary Pascarella, Pascarella? said that in the back of everything, there seemed to be some kind of black shadow that formed a head, and it moves. And as it moves, I feel personally threatened. Several people became cold, and several others began to feel ill. Lorraine Warren said, Whatever is here is, in my estimate, most definitely of a negative nature. It has nothing to do with anyone who has once walked this earth in human form. It is right from the bowels of the earth. One of the cameramen experienced heart palpitations when inside the sewing room, and Marvin Scott and Lorraine Warren felt a strong chill inside of the room. When they attempted a final seance, nothing strange happened. The Warrens believed that the atmosphere wasn't right, but that the house on Ocean Avenue was definitely harboring a demonic spirit that could only be removed by the way of an exorcism. An extremely famous ghost photograph was taken that night by Glenn Campbell, a professional photographer who worked with the Warrens. The picture was taken from an automatic 
infrared camera set up to capture the second-story landing. Peeking out from the doorway appears to be the face of a young boy. Some have speculated that it could be the ghost of murdered boy John DeFeo. Father Mancuso decided it was time to go away on a vacation. I mean, what he went through in this story, I don't. I don't right. yeah. <laughs> that shit would be permanent. Yeah. yeah, vacation time. I'm taking my two weeks, and yeah. I'm not coming. <laughs> Never <back>. coming back. <laughs> and when he came back, he was transferred to another location. The Lutzes left all of their things behind, signed the house over to the bank, and moved to California. Author Jay Anson told their story in the 1977 book The Amityville Horror. He never met the Lutzes but used 45 hours of recorded interviews with them to compile the story. He stated, quote, To the extent that I can verify them, all of the events in this book are true. The book became a bestseller and went on to spawn a 1979 movie and multiple sequels. The Lutzes made themselves about $300,000 and a good degree of fame. The haunting became one of the most famous in all of history. But the million-dollar question is, is it true? Join us in part three of this special as we dig deeper. Yeah, deeper. We need to dig deeper. So, all right, guys. Thanks for listening to the second uh, part of this three-part series. And uh, we're going to now head into the fire pit. I guess you know what time it is. All right, thanks for joining us in the uh, fire pit. Uh, this week, we've got a story uh, from Taylor. It's a New Zealand-based uh, podcast called Ruddle Me This, and me and Scott have been checking it out. It's a great podcast. You guys should listen in. Hey, Scott and Ryan, this is Taylor. I'm a fellow um, creepy story curator like yourselves. And this is a quick version of a story that happened to me that I believe to be paranormal in nature. So what happened in around 2018, I live in New Zealand now, but at the time I was living in Japan. And on this particular night, I was staying over at my girlfriend's house. We were just getting ready to go to bed and I was taking the cat downstairs to shut him into his little area as he had uh, developed a nasty habit of waking me up in the middle of the night with a slap to the face. And just before I could shut him in there, there was this incredibly hard boom on the front door. And my girlfriend peeked out from over the top of the loft that she was in. We kind of looked at each other like, what the hell was that? And then there was another boom and another boom and another boom. And it just kept going. It was like boom, 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 boom on the front door. And this is about one in the morning. We could tell that they or it was striking the door with an open palm or maybe a hammer fist like in the MMA. And it was just a, yeah, like a slapping of an open palm. It honestly didn't seem like they were trying to break the door down. They weren't punching the door. They weren't throwing their body against the door. It was just somebody hitting their hand really, really hard at the door. I know I wasn't imagining it because my girlfriend and the cat reacted to it too. And we could actually see the door rattling from the, the force of the strikes. We weren't really sure what to do. Um, I thought about opening the door and confronting who was on the other side of it. My girlfriend didn't really want me to do that, so I didn't. The creepiest thing about it to us was that they weren't calling out at all. Like, we had a lot of theories. Perhaps it was a drunk student that had gotten lost and trying to find a, a party house or something. 
we thought maybe it was a neighbor trying to intimidate her because she had a foreigner staying there. There was a lot of different possibilities, but the thing that really creeped us out was just, apart from the banging, how silent the person on the other side of the door was. I don't really know how long it went on for. It felt like at least five minutes, but that could have just been my sense of time going weird when something traumatic or stressful is happening. And then just as suddenly as it started, it stopped again. We figured we would hear them go running off or go stomping down the stairs of her apartment building, but we didn't hear a single thing. It was like they just vanished into thin air. Eventually, we opened the door, looked out the windows from above. There was nothing there. So we have absolutely no idea what that was. So that's a very truncated version of my story. I have a full version of that in uh, the first episode of my spooky stories uh, kind of sub-series of my podcast. If you want to hear the full thing as well as two other really good stories from New Zealanders, everyday New Zealanders that have submitted stories, check out my podcast, Ruddle Me This, on Buzzsprout or Spotify, your favourite podcast players. Anyway, gents, I love the show. Really um, honoured that you would play my story. I'm uh, looking forward to your playing your story on my show too. Cheers. Uh, thanks a lot, Taylor. That was a great story. Again, in case you didn't catch it, that was uh, Taylor from Ruddle Me This. And if you didn't notice, he said that uh, uh, playing our story, Ryan is doing a story for uh, for him that he is going to play on his podcast. That'll be coming out here soon. We'll uh, let you know. But uh, So go over there, check it out. You'll hear Ryan over there doing his stuff. And the guy, he's he's really funny, dude. He's a stand-up comedian. He does a lot of different stuff on his podcast. He's it's really a, interesting. It's a great guy. show, guys. Definitely check it out. Yeah, and he's the he went. He's in New Zealand. He goes to Japan. I don't even go any. I went to Nebraska. He's, he's got that to Japan. Well, I love the accent too. That's a <laughs> yeah, badass me too. Accent. That is that's a, so badass compared to our main accent. I know. Our, our accent sucks. <laughs> yeah, it's the worst. It's I'm gonna work. I'm gonna work on it. It's wicked. Next bad. next week I'm gonna. <laughs> <laughs> all right guys we appreciate you joining us and uh, uh we'll catch you on uh yeah don't forget uh part three coming right up uh this is part two of our special you got to check out part three uh so now we've done the murders we've done the hauntings now we're going to get in the aftermath is where it gets exciting for me this is the uh, conspiracy is this haunting true is it not uh, you got to stick around for that thanks for joining us see you in the next one later Hi, my name is Joe, and I'm the host of Tales, Trails, and Taverns. In this show, Rob and I like to take an active approach by hiking out to haunted, creepy, and abandoned places. We love the adventure and discovering the dark history of the locations we visit. We release a new episode every Friday on Apple, Spotify, and Patreon, as well as bonus episodes on varying Tuesdays. But don't just take my word for it, we have great listeners who have left some awesome reviews. Oh, I love adventure, but during those times when I can't get into the outback, oh, I like to listen to Tales, Trails, and Taverns. Those boys dig deep into the dark history, and their first-hand experiences really delivers the excitement. This podcast is a beaut. Back when I was the governor, I didn't have time to listen to podcasts. But now that I'm retired from politics, I can focus on my two passions, pumping iron and listening to tales, trails, and taverns. It doesn't matter who we are. What matters is that we all listen to tales, trails, and taverns. I love listening to the podcast. Wait, what's a podcast again? It's an audio show you listen to. Oh, like on the radio? Sort of, yeah. Okay. I love listening to Tulips and Tiddlywinks. It's Tales, Trails, and Taverns. And what do you do again? Hike to scary places and drink beer. Sounds terrifying. Okay. 
I like to listen to Terrifying Tea Time, but not on the radio. Uh, okay, thank you. You did great. You're welcome. Say, so you're kind of cute. Is there a Mrs. Tales, Trails, and Taverns? Now, now you get it? No actual celebrities or political figures have endorsed Tales, Trails, and Taverns. All the reviews you've heard were written, fully, by the host, George Lennox, as well as the impersonations of celebrities, politicians, and movie characters. I meant no harm. Please don't sue me.